Hermione Granger and the Silent Country. From There Is Nothing to Fear by Santissi Day. Read by Sam Gabriel. Based on the works of J.K. Rowling. Chapter 12 Good Neighbors The first task was more than a month away. Not due until late November, but that was no reason to dawdle. They didn't know what they were going to be dealing with, which meant that anything and everything might be worth studying. "'Beasts! The tournament has always involved beasts,' Victor said. Hermione frowned. "'There are an awful lot of those to choose from.' "'Everyone will have some say in the tasks,' Fleur said. "'What is Riddle likely to desire?' "'Something very dangerous,' Hermione said. "'Maybe a do-over of the Draken Quidditch event?' What would we do in that case? I think mostly we would die, Victor said, and Hermione had to see his point. Only half a champion had escaped alive from the tournament of 1782. But I do not think he would ask for that. We must know that this champion is unlikely to be the best of Quidditch players when Bobeton and Armstrong can recruit so far abroad. Maybe something like the Runespore Pit, or something else to do with snakes, Hermione suggested. Riddle is supposed to be able to talk with them, isn't he? Maybe he could convince them to rig it for his champion. If this is the case, then Riddle will most likely wait for the third task. When the ultimate prize is still at hand, or the second task, where complete success can make up for failure on the first, said Fleur. We should not worry about snakes for now. The judges like obstacle courses, don't they? Traditionally speaking, I mean. Hermione frowned. I suppose that some sort of physical exercise is guaranteed one way or another. At least we can be sure that we won't have to duel each other. We might, Victor said. Okay, but we won't really have to duel each other, she clarified. Not like... like Haywood. It won't be serious, is what I'm trying to say. It would be a friendly duel, Victor agreed. Right. Anyway, Hermione said, trying to refocus the conversation before she dwelt again on thoughts of Haywood and Dementors. There's a whole lake out there... We should at least have some initial ideas for how we would approach that. Ship, Victor suggested. Or shark? I'm not sure how conjuring a shark would help. It might complicate things, actually. Now become the shark. You must only do a little bit of it, which is easy. Fleur looked dumbfounded. Human transfiguration is very dangerous. As Dimitri would say, the winter nights are long... "'Cold and very boring. "'And you can only smoke so much puff-skin powder "'before you are cutting it with dandruff.' "'So you transfigure each other?' Fleur said, one eyebrow raised. "'Victor shrugged. "'There are many bad ideas that look good "'when you have smoked one part powder, two two parts dandruff. "'Besides, I am good at it.' "'Let's put it on the maybe pile,' Hermione suggested. "'And they continued to discuss the Black Lake "'and its potential tasks,' and how they might handle it, for a couple more hours before they separated and went to bed. It was not much later when Fleur and Hermione got a response at last from Baptiste Lestrange. Several weeks had gone by since Fleur had written to him, and several more might have passed without note, seeing as the Secretariat for Foreign Affairs was busier than ever, and the same was perfectly true for Baptiste. However, soon after another Triwizard Champions meeting, with guest instructor Adalia present to evaluate their reflexes, Baptiste's owl arrived at the window to Fleur's bedroom. Hermione was present, flipping through Fleur's textbook at random and drilling her on arithmetic minutiae, and as Fleur removed the wax seal and opened Baptiste's letter, 
Hermione fished out a couple of silver monies for the owl. When she turned back, Fleur was frowning. "'What's wrong?' asked Hermione, but Fleur said nothing even as her fingers tightened enough to push through the parchment. "'What's he saying? Is Baptiste all right?' Fleur continued to say nothing. Perhaps she hadn't heard anything. Sighing, Hermione took the parcel and undid the little knot keeping it together. Inside were the negatives to a couple of photos of herself, looking up at her and frowning, and a couple of neatly folded sheets of parchment. The first of them was a dry list of technical terms like color profile blue-brown and ruling planet Mercury, but her name was at the top. The other sheet was a short report, how Hermione performed in her classes, what she said about her teachers and what they said about her, who she spoke with most often and who she liked to do homework with, Hermione and Toto, as told by Baptiste Lestrange. It took a couple of seconds for everything to click, for her to realize what had happened and who had done it to her. In a way, everything made a little more sense now. That shit-eater! Hermione cursed. Fleur was looking at the photographs now, her expression grave, and Hermione took Baptiste's dangling letter from her left hand. It told her little that Hermione hadn't surmised from the package. Baptiste had initially thought that his superiors were performing a routine security check. He had written the same sort of report on Fleur and Sabrina, as well as his own mentor, Celestina Picotti, and several of his friends. Then Baptiste had heard of Hermione's selection by the Goblet of Fire, and he had been worried. And then Fleur's letter came, and he became suspicious. Besides the reports that had been sent in the accompanying parcel, there were several others which Baptiste had learned about, but been unable to access or duplicate, and leaders of Nîmes, comprising the memories of every visit he had taken to Beaubaton the past year. It had been taken with his permission, under the pretext that the chiefs were keeping tabs on his behavior while he was on secretariat business. But Baptiste now thought that their real reason for acquiring these memories was to observe Hermione more closely, under circumstances which would prevent her from being aware of it. Hermione could see it all from Baptiste's perspective, and understand quite easily how he had been duped, but it was hard not to feel angry with him. "'We should tell Sabrina,' she said. "'No. If we are to keep this a secret, then as few as possible should hear about it. Sabrina has nothing to do with the government. She cannot tell us anything that we do not know.' There was a knock at the door. "'Fleur! Is Hermione there?' It was Vicente. Speaking, Hermione replied, speaking. I ran into Mr. October. He said he would like to speak with you when you get a chance. I'm, uh, busy, Fleur quietly suggested. Busy, right, Hermione said, and then a little more loudly, so Vicente could hear through the door. I'm busy. Just when you get a chance, that's what he said. Good night, Hermione, and good night, Fleur. Well, look at that. It was night, or just about with the dusky sunlight still just barely playing across the surface of the increasingly autonomous Black Lake. The room was quiet for a little while as Hermione looked at Baptiste's letter and at the window and occasionally at Fleur. Finally, she said, "'I don't want to talk with October.' "'I didn't realize you were debating that,' Hermione sighed. "'Well, I was, and I think I should talk to him. I mean—' "'He obliviated you. He used—Hermione probably gave you the other serum.' Right, but this isn't going to go away just because I'm ignoring him. Sooner or later he's going to press the issue, like he did with the tournament and threatening to sanction Babaton. Fleur had nothing to say to that, and Hermione tried to return to quizzing her from the textbook, but neither of their hearts were really in it. Though it was hardly late, and there was still some studying that Hermione could do, 
There was always some studying that she could do. The revelation of Baptiste's involvement had left her unaccountably tired, and she went to her own bedroom to sleep. The week passed with nary a hint of October, except his presence at the high table during a few of the meals, and a fleeting glimpse or two as he walked across the grounds. Then came Friday, and a potions lesson which made her worry a little for Professor Malfoy. For the past couple of weeks, Professor Malfoy had been giving them practical instructions in Gompelot's third law. Potions were a tricky business, sitting somewhere on a nebulous spectrum between alchemy and enchantment, sometimes more one than other. At the core of nearly every potion was a spell, and its ingredients were prepared in order to make a special vessel to hold, and perhaps modify that spell. Normally, a potion would require these and those ingredients, which were stable, or at least productively unstable, with respect to each other, and another potion would require other ingredients. However, most potions which worked as antidotes were efficacious against only one kind of poison, and so a blended poison would require a blended potion, lest one potion or the other go unaddressed, or worse, react to the antidote in some alarming and probably detrimental fashion. To ensure that two alexoteric potions were properly integrated with each other, additional stabilizing ingredients were required, hence Gompelot's third law. The antidote for a blended poison will be equal to more than the sum of the antidotes for each of these separate components. Today, however, Professor Malfoy had been a shadow of his tutelar self. He seemed distracted in his lecture, and he had assigned a relatively simple potion, as he had in the first class, where normally he had been willing to guide them in some rather complicated bruise, even if their failures could be catastrophic. He usually trusted himself in a way he did not seem to trust himself now to catch such errors before they could hurt anyone. He still made the rounds during this lesson and focused on the lower-ranking tables as he always did, but for all that, Professor Malfoy seemed distant, as if the bulk of him were somewhere far away. When Hermione spoke with Draco about it after class, in the few minutes they had between potions and dinner, he seemed to think it had something to do with politics. "'There's a vote coming up in the wizzing gamut. Mother's been working on it all summer,' Draco said. "'Britain hasn't finalized its trade and travel policies, you know, and some of the MWs are in favor of very stringent restrictions. A couple didn't even want to end the interdict, so of course they don't want to formally open us up even further to the rest of the world.' The sort of things they're talking about would make it almost impossible for people just to visit Britain. Mother's been trying to pull together the votes for something that doesn't leave us living under a self-imposed embargo, but it's been difficult, she says, because it isn't hard to just say no to every proposal, but everybody who wants something wants something different. Hermione nodded, and as they entered the Great Hall, parted ways with Draco and the other Hufflepuffs in order to sit by Theo. Day by day, mealtimes were becoming a little pleasanter and a little more tolerable. Hermione picked dishes more randomly, and now and then sat with the Slytherins or the Ravenclaws, and very few students were interested in bewitching her food when they might as easily ruin somebody else's day. There was nothing which people disliked so much as collateral damage. Even walking between tables was a relatively safe affair, when magic was forbidden in the Great Hall and every professor in the school was present. By the middle of October, the most distasteful thing about her meals wasn't even the surety that, every other day, or on the third day at the very least, Hermione would get another note from Riddle, rolled up in her croissant or laying at the bottom of her salad bowl. No, it was October, watching her as intently as Riddle's pet basilisk might have done, for all that he had eyelids and did have to blink every now and then. Even Neville noticed it, though he thought October was watching the delegation as a whole. He was only present some of the time, but the irregularity, the constant wondering whether October would be present this time or not, was bothersome in its own right. It was on Saturday, near the end of lunch, that Hermione made up her mind to talk with him. 
Fleur, of course, protested, but Hermione explained her plan to talk with him in the open, with Fleur not present but in sight, and finally Fleur relented. When lunch ended, Hermione remained behind for a moment, long enough for October to exit, and then followed after him, with Fleur close behind. October was a bit taller than her and strode further, but it was with an idle pace that he headed to the edge of the grounds, so Hermione had no trouble catching up to him. When she did so, Hermione was pleased to see a note of surprise in his eyes as he stopped walking. "'You wanted to see me,' Hermione said flatly, before he could ask. "'So I did,' October asked, and he made a show of checking his pocket watch. "'I think I can squeeze you in. Would you like to wait at the carriage?' It might be more comfortable if we were to sit. Hermione shook her head. As you wish. Why are you doing this? Hermione asked. I am a servant of my country and our government. Whatever it is that this this is, that is surely why. October glanced behind him, nodded as he saw Fleur, then returned his attention to Hermione. I have been busy at home and at Hogwarts. But that doesn't mean I can't express a little interest in your welfare. It was a shock to see your name fly out of the goblet of fire, but I can only imagine how you felt about it, October said, and the bastard actually managed to sound sincere. Tell me, how have you been doing? Hermione stared at him briefly, then remembered her occlumency lessons and the most important lesson of them all, and averted her gaze. I know what you're doing. "'but I suppose it doesn't matter. "'I'm going to participate in the tournament, "'but that doesn't mean that I can win, you know.' "'No, I suppose not. "'But I sincerely hope that you will do your best. "'Your success would shine brightly on France, "'and your own standing would benefit immensely.' "'If that wasn't a hinted reference to what October had promised her, "'or at least what Hermione remembered him promising, "'then she was fish-poisoned.' "'I guess you would like to know that Riddle doesn't seem very happy with me,' Hermione said. "'October had been curious about the headmaster's intentions toward her, hadn't he? "'He was trying to run me out of the tournament, asking Karkaroff and Maxime to annul my selection.' "'But there you are, still a champion,' October smiled. "'Of Hogwarts, technically, but a champion nonetheless.' "'I guess so. I don't like it when people use me,' Hermione said and she hoped that seemed more intimidating than she felt herself to be. Anyway, he's been trying to get me to meet with him again. Why? I don't know. Maybe to try his hand again at convincing me to exit the tournament? Curious. I think it might be to your benefit to speak with him, Hermione. Maybe, she said, not bothering to address that October had a funny idea of what benefited her, if he thought that talking to Riddle would qualify. "'But I want something in return. "'I want you to answer something for me.' "'October nodded, and so Hermione continued. "'What did Baptiste have to do with this, with me? "'Why did I get wrapped up in this?' "'October's eyes widened in surprise, "'but whether the feeling was feigned or real, "'Hermione couldn't tell. "'He sighed and looked out into the forbidden forest "'for a few seconds, maybe even a whole minute, "'before he returned his attention to Hermione.' As you may know, I used to work for the Secretariat for Foreign Affairs, and when I left, I took with me an appreciation for the power and necessity of international diplomacy. 
restaurants came from a good background and had the right credentials. And we might have picked him up regardless, but what made him indispensable was, yes, his connection to you. Hermione opened her mouth to speak, but found that she couldn't quite get anything out, not because of a silencing charm, but because there was simply no way to put her shock and dread to words. It was inevitable that Britain would disclose itself, he continued, and we thought to use, yes, use you as a bridge between our countries, a witch born in one and raised in the other, who might find common ground and friends in both. The plan was that Lestrange would encourage you to find employment in the Secretariat, and then he or someone else would mentor you, and whether Britain would join the Wizarding World in ten years or fifty, you would have at least a little preparation, and of much more for your intended role. But everything happened more quickly than you expected, and you had to improvise. As you say, October replied. You know it as well as I, the real master of this country is little. For that reason, I am concerned by his attitude toward you, for any hostility toward you might as well be hostility toward France, but if there is any chance that he is softening, then I would very much like to know. Hermione frowned. If you thought that Britain was going to be opening up later on, long enough to prepare me, then why did things happen differently? Do you know why you were wrong? There was a long silence before October replied. The old British government thought that they knew who Riddle was, and they were wrong. I'm not sure if anybody knows who Riddle is. Don't you mean what he is? As you say. They stood together in silence for a moment, and Hermione looked back at Fleur. She hoped that her aggravation didn't look like distress from over there. So you're still just guessing? Riddle not uncommonly behaves in ways which are contrary to the best and the most complete profiles which we could draw on him, October admitted. To paraphrase one of your British muggles, he is a riddle wrapped in a mystery, and so on and so forth. But there is a key, and the key is British national interest, Hermione guessed, completing more or less the rest of Churchill's saying. If there is a key, then we are still looking for it. But if his motives lie at the bottom of a deep sea, then it is my hope that we can learn something of his mind by skipping a stone across it, just as we were able to keep abreast of certain facts regarding Britain by observing their negative image, as it were, in the muggles. For example, the London Zoo for the past decade displayed a horrendous mortality rate, losing all sorts of exotic animals on a regular basis, and yet not only has this mostly been kept out of the papers, the zoo has also gotten a larger budget every year, principally for further acquisition. Now what does that tell you? They're harvesting the animals for potions. October nodded. Among these animals is the boom slang. Now what do you surmise from that? Hermione screwed up her face in concentration. It was an interesting problem, and almost enough for her to forget what October had done to her. Boomslangs hold the property of renewal, but that property is limited, which makes them basically useless for restoring someone to health. Not entirely, October corrected. But there are certainly better potions for that purpose most of the time. There is something else which the muggles have been importing. 
Ethandus brachiatus. That's fluxweed, isn't it? she asked. And October nodded. Well, then. There was a property of change there as well. Renewal was a sort of change, too, wasn't it? So the fluxweed would probably serve as a base for the boomslang, but it was a lot easier to figure out how the parts of a potion would function when Hermione had the whole recipe in front of her. And there was a difference between knowing why something worked the way it did and being able to predict that working from a bunch of disparate parts. But maybe Hermione had the recipe after all. And there was something at the back of her mind tickling her awareness, something she'd read about back in... Slightly, Hermione walked herself back through old classes and textbooks, remembering lightly, letting her thoughts dance from association to association without trying to force anything. Boomslang and fluxweed. Beautification potion required some boomslang skin, but it didn't use fluxweed, and anyway, October was unlikely to care about that. When the answer finally came to mind, Hermione knew it was the answer because it was the only thing she could think of that he might be concerned about. They're making Polyjuice Potion. Stones across the ocean, October said again. Hermione, when you speak with Riddle, his words come to you from behind the mask. You do not know what is going on behind it, just as we did not know, and in many ways still do not know the state of Britain. But if he lies, he is lying for a reason. And if you are clever and resourceful, and perhaps a bit lucky, then it may be possible to learn something that is true. He wants to meet with you, or he wants you to believe that he wants to meet with you. That is why it is important that you meet with him. Hermione frowned. You know that he's a legitimate, right? Well, then, I suggest that you don't let him look in your eyes. But I see you're already acquainted with that, aren't you? He said and Hermione, frowning, turned her eyes further away than before. It wasn't much, but it was anything at all, better than an ominous, self-addressed message, and that was worth something. Okay, I'll think about it, Hermione said, and she would. Riddle wasn't the only person with secrets that could be sniffed out. Is that all you wanted to tell me? As you say, he said, and Hermione headed back to Fleur. As Hermione explained what she had discussed with October, Fleur seemed to be more bothered by it than she was. That was fair, really. Hermione had been bothered by Fleur's entry into the tournament and cared less about her own entry per se than that the fact of it meant that Haywood wasn't in the tournament. It was, Hermione thought to herself, always easier to ask somebody else to sequester themselves for your peace of mind than to do it yourself for theirs. Afterward, Hermione returns to her bedroom and set to writing that week's set of letters— there wasn't much that she could do for Fleur's peace of mind at the moment, but Hermione felt some obligation to keep her family from worrying. Even Professor McGonagall had a sort of vaguely dismissive attitude toward muggles. Consciously respectful, and certain that they had rights as human beings, but generally out of touch with recent developments, a little patronizing of the poor things in the way they couldn't even spell away a simple flu, and slow to think of them except in a general sort of way. Despite everything that had happened since Hermione had come to Britain, McGonagall probably hadn't thought about whether Hermione had told her parents, because she probably didn't think much about Hermione's parents to begin with. But her parents were more resourceful than a lot of witches and wizards might give them credit for. If they ever had reason to worry about Hermione, they would find a way to get in touch with McGonagall, who, once she was thinking about them, would think they ought to know the truth. That wouldn't mean much, since in most countries in Europe, muggles didn't have very much authority over their magical children, 
but it would make things awkward over the summer. Hermione considered what to tell them, ever conscious of the need to avoid too many outright fabrications. Finally, she decided to start with the mundanities. "'It's cold up here,' she began. "'And so there isn't much in the way of sports, "'or at least any which excite me enough to draw me outside to observe them. "'They play Quidditch at Durmstrang, but it's nothing I haven't seen before.' "'She could talk about Padfoot, too,' Hermione decided. "'Hadn't she already told them that there were dogs at Durmstrang?' Perhaps she could even take a photo of him, a proper wizarding photograph that moved. Maybe once it was properly snowing, so she could get some photographs of the Black Lake, too. There was nothing new for McGonagall, just a note of surprise at the younger Crouch's survival, and Hermione was disappointed that she could only write that, if she learned anything more, she would send it off with an owl as soon as she could. It nagged at her, much as she could tell it nagged at McGonagall, but there was nothing that either of them could do about it, at least for now. At that thought, Hermione considered something else which had been bothering her for a little while, and pulled out from her pocket the latest summons from Riddle, which he had found in the center of an apple, curled up like a worm. "'Your presence at my office is cordially requested. Please make yourself available at any time.' "'Really? Any time at all?' But Riddle taught classes, two of them actually, and with no sign that he had assistants or adjutants or anything of the sort to take over a few of them— Dark magic and mental magic were just electives, but that would still be a heavy course load, even if the headmaster weren't a headmaster. Among the other professors, only Lupin seemed to have such a heavy obligation. She brought it up at the next Occlumacy lesson, and with the other's assistance, she was able to put together a bit of a schedule. Ron knew only when the Slytherins had mental magic, Monday and Tuesday afternoon with the Ravenclaws, but Theo knew the complete fourth-year schedule for both classes, and Dimitri took dark magic with the seventh-years on... Wait just a minute. Hermione looked at the little day planner graph she'd made, as though it would make sense just as soon as she'd stared at it long enough. There were too many classes. You... all of you are sure that this is right? Mostly I am making rude jokes to Victor and trying not to be overheard, but I am very much paying attention to the times, said Dimitri. I too would be confused to find that I've gotten my schedule wrong, oh yeah? Theo said. This doesn't make any sense. Hermione jabbed her finger against one of the entries. Look here, you're saying that you take mental magic with Riddle in the first afternoon block on Mondays, and then dark magic, but Dimitri's taking dark magic when you're taking mental magic. There's just no way that he can be in two places, she said, trailing off as she finally understood. You're taking lessons from Death Eaters some of the time, aren't you? She concluded, and Theo nodded. Maybe that's why he told me to show up at any time. Hermione continued, speaking half to herself. Maybe he doesn't do any teaching at all, and just hangs back in the office. I'm pretty sure that he teaches some things, Theo said. Legitimacy and occlumency, if nothing else. Hermione brought the topic up again the next day at breakfast. I feel a little bit foolish for not realizing it immediately, she admitted. You're near him. I think it might take some getting used to if it were me, Draco said. I always sort of had the idea in my head personally, but Dora's a Death Eater, and I know for a fact she's taught dark magic a couple of times, wearing the mask. He leaned over and, in a hushed voice, said, She's quite good at being him, you know, but I know her, and she can't put it past me all the time. Then why don't you say something? Hermione said. Didn't you say that you get points for it? We do, Ginny said tiredly. Sometimes I wonder if Draco remembers. Draco shrugged apologetically. Its sincerity somewhat belied by his smile. 
We're Hufflepuffs, you and I, but Dora's my cousin. Do you think I've ever thrown a limp quaffle, just to make it easier on my brothers? Besides, she's one of us. She ought to take one for the house, Ginny said. I won't criticise how you play Quidditch, but there are bigger things than our houses. This is her job, you know. Her job? interrupted Hermione. Do you mean that she gets paid for being a Death Eater? Is there a... They probably didn't have an income tax. Most wizarding countries didn't. You still have a census, right? What does she put down for a profession? Actor, probably. Dora performs at the Diagonal Theatre sometimes. They probably wouldn't know it, of course. She tried to start up a drama club at Hogwarts in her last few years here, actually. Draco sighed. Not that anything came of it. And I doubt that'll change in the near future, since Portrait Club satisfies the desire for regular performances. Don't insult the Portrait Club, Ginny said. That's art, Draco. Of course it's art. It's bloody portraits, isn't it? Draco said. And when Hermione left them, Ginny and Draco were still engaged in a good-humoured argument on the nature of art and the ethical demands of house membership. It wasn't until much later, after Fleur and Hermione had spent the afternoon studying in Hermione's room, that she revealed her intention to meet with Riddle. Fleur, of course, was less than thrilled to hear about it. "'Was one confrontation this month not enough, Hermione? "'I worry that you are making a habit of this,' Fleur said. "'It won't be a habit until the third time. "'Are you sure that you want to do this?' "'October wants to know what Riddle is thinking,' Hermione explained. "'The wizard who drugged and obliviated you "'wants you to do something, "'and you are telling me that is a reason in favour of doing it.' "'I know it sounds crazy. "'It sounds like lunacy, Hermione. "'I know, I know, but—' "'I want to know why October wants to know.' "'And Hermione sighed, because no was starting to not sound like a word to her any more. "'Besides, I don't want to be afraid of Riddle. "'I'm tired of eating things and finding his damn notes inside of him, "'and I'm sick to death of worrying that I might meet him around the corner.' "'Fleur sighed and looked at Hermione for a long, quiet moment, "'then took a deep breath. "'As Fleur exhaled, she seemed to deflate a little.' "'All right, the one that you're thinking of doing this?' "'Now,' Hermione admitted. "'I've been thinking about it for most of the day, actually, "'and I should probably head over there before I've lost my nerve. "'And before you think about delaying me until I do, "'you should know that I've lost my nerve and gotten it back a few times already "'since I decided to do this, and I'll get it back again, "'and I won't be happy with you when I do.' "'By the frown on her face, Fleur had obviously been considering just that, "'but she nodded, unhappy but understanding.' From her desk, Hermione retrieved the beetle pin that Madame Maxime had given to her, brilliant blue and gilded, and affixed it to the inside of her collar. "'I never should have taken this off,' she said, mostly to herself. Together, Hermione and Fleur set out for the castle, walking close together, and with only a little bit of difficulty, they located the headmaster's office. As they approached, the door opened, and Riddle stepped out. Hermione stepped back, startled, and turned to walk after Riddle as he walked away, but he stopped and held up a hand. "'The headmaster is inside,' said the Death Eater, in the same locustine buzz that Riddle spoke with, and then departed. Hermione looked back at the door, now closed. "'I'll be on the other side,' Fleur said. And Hermione felt as though she didn't need that silly pin in her collar to be safe, which was manifestly untrue, of course, but it was a nice feeling all the same. "'Wish me luck,' Hermione said and she opened the door. The rest of the castle was cool and sometimes chilly, but passing through the threshold of Riddle's office was like walking into winter. Hermione shivered, but didn't complain about the cold. The floors were bare stone beneath her shoes, 
There were bookshelves against every wall save one, covered by an expanse of paintings, flipped to face their wall. In one corner was a soft dog's bed, currently unoccupied. The breath of the castle was cool and sometimes chilly, but passing through the threshold of Riddle's office was like walking into winter. Hermione shivered, but didn't complain about the cold. The floors were bare stone beneath her shoes. There were bookshelves against every wall save one, covered by an expanse of paintings, flipped to face their wall. In one corner was a soft dog's bed, currently unoccupied. "'You have made yourself quite difficult to get a hold of,' Riddle observed. Hermione said nothing, and he continued. "'I wanted to offer my congratulations to you on becoming the Hogwarts champion.' Riddle raised his hands and clapped twice in the same mechanical applause which he'd given her once before. Congratulations. Despite knowing it had been his intention, Hermione was finally roused to a response. Why? I thought I was just some French girl who was going to trip over her own shoes in the first task. Everything you have done since the Goblet of Fire selected you has been to your credit. You've only added to the good name of this school. I would be, Hermione corrected. I'm not actually a student here. I mean, I'm here at Hogwarts, but I'm only just visiting. Is that so? Riddle turned the book around and pushed it forward to Hermione's side of the desk. There were many possible reasons that the goblet selected you. A very skillful confundus charm, for example. But it seems that all those theories are unnecessary. Riddle pressed a finger down on the page. There, Hermione saw, was her own name, written in full, in flowing black ink between two others. Gregory Gorgian Goyle, Hermione Jean Granger, Daphne Cifera Greengrass. You are enrolled, Riddle said. Perhaps you already supposed as much. I noticed that you have been checking up books from the library. Ah, yes, Riddle said as he examined a strip of parchment he had taken out of the inner sleeve of his robes. Lambs and Lions, Tom Riddle, British Kinkinatus. What did you think of that one? I found it a little cloying, if I can say so. But of course I appreciate the sentiment. Oh, and Fogging the Mind, yes. Perhaps you could share your opinion, one book one to another. Hermione said nothing. Quite right. Madame Pince likes to keep the catalogue updated. But frankly, I don't see a reason to waste any part of our budget on occupancy textbooks. It is hard to get very far without a mentor anyway. But then you know that as well, don't you? We won't be starting occupancy until next year. But it's always good to see when a couple of my students have enough personal initiative to begin early. With an academic record like yours, and a little catch-up over the summer, I'm sure there would be no reason not to approve your late entry to the Owl-level mental magic course next year. I won't be at Hogwarts next year, Hermione said. I'm a Bobbit Hall student. Of course you are, Riddle said agreeably. Nevertheless, I'm quite confident that you'll be asking me for permission to transfer before the year is out. He tapped the list of books Hermione had checked out and hummed a few bars that sounded vaguely approving. Given your track record... I'm sure I'll have no trouble granting a request, though I expect a show of good behavior from you as well, or it'll be off to Bobaton with you, no matter what your grades might be. <laughs> he chuckled or coughed. Behind the mask, below the buzz, it was hard to tell. You can keep thinking that if you want to, 
Riddle put a hand to his chin and tilted his mask in thought. I suppose that you would have gone to Phineas's house, but I think you would have made a good Gryffindor as well. I didn't appreciate their welcoming committee. Yes, you've been having some disagreements with some of the Rothhausers, haven't you? That's putting it nicely. If you really want me to feel welcome, and you aren't just making some weird... I don't even know what this is. But maybe you could actually rein in your students. Of course. Mr. Sable will be happy to assist. Would you like for discipline to be carried out alphabetically or in order of their attacks? What? No! You can't send them down there. I never asked you to... I do not believe in half-hearted lessons or in permanent solutions. Mr. Crabbe and Jordan have the poor judgment to do their work under circumstances that could not be ignored, and they got their just desserts, while Mr. Sable got dessert. Since that time, have they done anything of that nature again? Or, for that matter, as Miss Hayward? No. Mr. Hopkins was transfigured into a small animal, and I understand that Mr. Macmillan spent the better part of a day snorting bats out of his nose, but, and this is crucial, they got better. Nothing that has been done to them has given them cause to fear, except what I have done. If you think that there is some less brutal consequence which may achieve what you desire, then you are free to carry it out yourself. Nobody deserves to be sent to a Dementor, and I don't think anybody needs to be. That's monstrous what you're doing. It does appear that way, doesn't it? Riddle sighed. But its tone suggested contentment, even a sort of patronizing indulgence, rather than exasperation. I know that you have taken umbrage at some of the things you have seen, and yes, some of the things you have experienced. But I ask that you give me the benefit of the doubt. Why is that? Because, Miss Granger, I'm trying to save you. Hermione stood sharply and looked at Riddle, where his eyes surely were, behind that expressionless mask. I've got that covered, thanks. Flair's presence on the other side of the door, and the beetle pin on her collar were proof of that. And not just those, but Adalia and Lino's promise, and the extra eyes that Neville and Dean lent during classes and Dimitri's lessons all the other friends who had come with her from France, or whom she'd met and made in Britain. If Hermione needed saving by somebody else, then she was practically surrounded by people who would help her, and further assistance was not required. Riddle said nothing in reply, and eventually Hermione left. The 31st of October was a Monday, and Hermione had precious little that day to concern her. After she left Werewolf Studies, Hermione found herself a comfortable place in the carriage, and set to work on her correspondence classes. Before lunch, Hermione had sketched out the preliminaries of a reading list for interbeing relations, and then she wrote the first draft of an essay on the Murmish population of the British Isles, or what remained of it anyway, since many of them left before Britain closed itself off. Eventually, Fleur found her, and Hermione allowed herself to be led away from her books and notes. The path up to the castle was lined with spectral blue candles, and unearthly lights dappled the surface of the black lake. Inside, the great hall was decked out with moaning chains and enormous webs. Live bats hung from perches high on the wall or chased after orange flickering glowworms in flight. Off on one side, the ghosts played something mournful and ethereal on musical saws and panpipes. Over everyone, bat and ghost and witch alike, there hung stormy black clouds and the crescent glimmer of a dying moon and a faint mist crawled and swirled at their feet. 
ghastly pumpkin faces gazed out from every table, their faces twisting as if in silent murmuration, and every so often one would give the appearance of screaming as someone plunged a hand into its head and pulled out a handful of sweets or roasted seeds. By the time Hermione had reached their table, some of the Hufflepuffs had made a game of it, trying for the most gruesome expressions, or the greatest response with the least stimulus. "'It's all enchantment. They don't really feel anything at all,' Neville said. And Hermione decided she could at least not feel bad about it, even if the exercise was rather too macabre for her taste. "'Shrieking Shebbet, Hermione,' he asked, extending a handful of boiled sweets, individually wrapped in thin tinfoil, but Hermione shook her head. "'I couldn't possibly. My parents are healers specializing in teeth,' Hermione said, having long ago found out that was the best way to forestall requests for clarification about her parents' occupation, since elaboration always made her parents out to be torturers. "'If they found that I'd had one, they might die. But do you have any dark chocolate?' Fortunately, not only was there chocolate, but Hermione didn't need to root around in pumpkin guts to get it. Ginny passed a bowl down, and Hermione unwrapped a single-sized Feligan's flatty. The chocolate patty was not just dark, but darker than black, like a midnight tar, with a flavor unlike any chocolate she'd had before, utterly lacking in sweetness, but smoky and savory, and in possession of a deep bitterness that was more abyssal than absinthal. It was too unlike anything she'd ever experienced previously for her to determine whether she actually liked it. "'So you don't eat sweets?' asked Jenny. Hermione bit into a water biscuit and washed it down with a mouthful of pumpkin juice, but something of the chocolate's flavor remained, like the afterimage of a dead but distant star. Not really. Dark chocolate is okay because there isn't much sugar in it, but anything that's sticky or that you suck on is bad for your teeth. But muggles have Halloween, don't they? Neville said. How'd you manage that? British muggles do. We don't really have Halloween in France except with my family, she said and she wondered whether it might be more accurate to say that she didn't have Halloween at all anymore, since she had been at Beauxbatons or Petit Beau for so many of them. I remember a little bit of what Halloween was like when I still lived in Britain, going to the door for sweets, but at the end of the night I had to train everything in for apples and sugar-free gum and things like that. Nobody ever came by our house, not that I can remember, and of course nobody does now. Like I said, it isn't celebrated in France. That might be what my parents like most about moving here. I mean, there. "'So you don't do anything at the end of October?' asked Neville. "'We do, but it isn't exactly Halloween. "'At Bobaton we do something like jack-o'-lanterns "'and carve faces on sugar beets "'and leave them at crossroads on the grounds "'and the extra owl's alcoves at the Strigarium. "'It's supposed to frighten off Keeper Liverson "'and other such demons, "'but those are kept away from the grounds anyway, "'so mostly the beets just attract mice and so on.' "'The owls rather like that,' Lena interjected. "'They do.' Hermione agreed, and tomorrow will be to saints, which I suppose is important, but it's a religious holiday, and religion is, well, we treat it very privately at Bubbatal, so mostly there's just the Grimacing Beat Festival, and after that is the Day of the Dead, and there are no classes for the day, so that we can do helpful things for the ghosts, cleaning up the places that they tend to haunt, like the Profusieri, lighting candles for them, towing the bells, and leaving out food for them, old bread and spoiled milk and such things. There's this kind of cheese that some people start making months ahead of time. You ripen it and soak it in beer for eight or nine weeks, and then let it sit and get mouldy and rotten, and they can actually taste it, just a little. That must be nice for the ghosts, Neville said. I don't think we've ever done anything for them like that. 
The Halloween feast was as much a long dessert as it was a meal. Creamy pumpkin soup and spiderweb cake, haggish haggis and Irish peaches, roast venison and devil's eggs, baked potatoes and regal apples, roast quince fool and cheese pie, chicken blood soup and spaghetti with eyeballs, cauldrons of black and red lollipops, and bits of candied pork belly glazed with honey and butter. Much of it was too sweet or too heavy for Hermione's palate, but she still found plenty to please her, like the squash risotto and chestnut salad, while Fleur tucked into a plate of pumpkin pluck and black tofu. When Hermione was full and fit to burst, what little remained on plates and platters vanished, and Riddle arose from his seat at the high table. The Halloween feast is an old tradition, and since the beginning it has depended on the collective effort of our friends— Tonight, I would like to recognize them for their efforts. Riddle's words were greeted with pops of apparition. None were very loud in particular, but together they were like a long, painful explosion, and Hermione flinched and momentarily shut her eyes despite herself. On the high table, and standing before it, and behind the professors on tall conjured stools, was the biggest group of house-elves Hermione had ever seen. There were dozens and dozens, at least a hundred and maybe twice that many. Because Riddle wore a mask, his lips couldn't be seen, so Hermione didn't know whether he had continued his preamble for another couple of lines. By the time her ears stopped ringing and she refocused on Riddle, he was talking about the elves. Tippy, our head fish chef, who personally attended to the roast cart, and Pink, who prepared the accompanying lemon beurre blanc, as well as the maintenance of a few other sauces. We are grateful to you always, but ever so much more on this night. Riddle clapped softly, and almost immediately he was drowned out from the applause of the other faculty and students. Very soon, perhaps no more than thirty seconds later, Riddle held up a hand, and silence filled the great hall again before he spoke to another trio of elves, Pip and Sonnet and Droppy. Occasionally he put a hand on their small shoulders, or knelt down and handed them a few clinking coins, but he only gave money to the elves who wore clothes. Many of them, especially those tatterdemalian ones who were clothed, stood proudly when their names were called, and bowed when Riddle was finished. A few, however, shifted uneasily from foot to foot, or looked around with hunched shoulders, as if trying to make themselves small. Once the applause had died away for the last time, and the elves disapparated with another series of pops, Hermione asked if Neville and Draco had seen it too. "'They almost look scared.' "'Well, it's because they are, I guess,' Neville said. "'The younger elves are better about it, "'and, of course, you have a few who were happy from the start, "'but a lot of them don't like to be noticed. "'I heard that the headmaster wanted them to appear after every meal, actually, "'but instead it's only a few times a year. "'I guess they compromised.' "'But why? "'If they don't like it, then why make them do it in the first place?' "'One day they'll get used to it, maybe, "'and then they'll start working in the open all the time,' and then maybe eventually they'll be okay working for wages or whatever. I mean, a couple of them work for wages already, but most of them don't like that. Hermione took a few seconds to digest this. The rat of the elves are still enslaved, aren't they? Neville shrugged. I know that almost all of them were freed at some point, and then most of them went to work for Hogwarts, but I don't know if they were re-enslaved, magically speaking. Why do they work for Hogwarts? Well, there are a lot of restrictions that limit who can employ elves and what kind of work the elves can do for them and things like that, and 
you have to negotiate with the office for elvish welfare and labour because they're really bad at doing it for themselves sometimes. But apparently there are all these exceptions for Hogwarts because so many of the elves just couldn't accept the new way of doing things. They didn't want to be free, so if they wanted to work for just room and board and not for wages, then they have to do it for Hogwarts, and then Hogwarts will loan them out if... Well, I don't know who it is that decides, but if somebody decides that the work is okay. What about the families that they worked for? Have any of them gone back? Neville shook his head. It's very rare. Hermione thought about this for a moment. But what if they... You said that some of them... It was hard to wrap her mind around, let alone say. You said that some of them didn't want to be free. Right, they went to Hogwarts. I don't like it either. I don't know if anybody does. But I guess it's an acceptable compromise. But are they okay like that? They weren't all okay, but I think that's been sorted out by now. What was done to help them adjust, though? Oh, I don't really know exactly, Neville admitted. But all of the elves who couldn't handle it and couldn't adjust were eventually retired. It was hard for some of them, but Britain doesn't permit slavery, even if the slaves want it. Look, I don't agree with the headmaster on everything, but in the case of slavery, I don't think he's in the wrong, Neville said, and then, with an air of hesitation, he added, Every rational being must be free, or we are all in chains. But the retired elves are still being taken care of, right? Or does the... What did you call it? The... Welfare and Labour Office handle that, or does it only deal with elves who work? Neville stared at her in obvious befuddlement. They're dead, Hermione, said Draco. That's what retirement means. I... She was going to be sick. So when they're old and worthless to you, you just kill them? Hermione? Hermione! She heard Fleur say, and Hermione realized that she was leaning over her hands clenched into fists. Flair placed a hand on her shoulder, and Hermione forced her hands to relax. What's wrong? They kill the house elves, Hermione said, and Flair's hands tightened. When they don't work any more, they're killed. Oh, no, not at all, Neville said, his eyes wide, his hands shaking. If they can't work any more, that's just getting discharged. But they don't like feeling useless, even the elves who want to be free beings now, so they usually get jobs like watching the elflings or sorting potatoes, whatever it is that they can still do. The elfish office does make sure that their means of living are still accounted for, even when they're old. Then what is this about killing elves? said Fleur. The elves who, who want to be... I mean, you don't understand what's... What could Hermione say? That they wanted to be slaves. But how could any thinking being want that? "'You're killing them. What else should we have done?' asked Neville. "'It would have been evil if we left them in slavery. Even if an elf has a good master, even if the elves like it, slavery is wrong. "'Then you teach them, and you convince them to do it differently. Murder is wrong, too!' "'We tried that, and we're still trying, I guess. I mean, there's the celebration that you saw tonight,' Neville said." And Hermione felt queasy at the thought that it could be called a celebration now that she knew what underlay it and their education programs, and it's the elves who like being free who do the teaching. You saw, didn't you, that the younger elves didn't seem to have a problem with it, right, and that most of them had clothes. One day they're all going to wear clothes. What happens to the elves who do not agree? Flora asked. You said that some elves like being free. Some must therefore not like it. Well, I don't know exactly, 
Neville admitted. I don't think they get to hang around the elflings anymore. Like I said, it's other elves who do the teaching, but mostly they just get reassigned to different jobs. And of course people try to find accommodations for them, but nobody's going to be retired for having the wrong ideas. When elves couldn't accept freedom, they were retired, and it was a mercy because they were suffering. It was euthanasia, but, but it doesn't even happen anymore, because the change has already happened. Nobody is being moved around or freed from their owners anymore. That was all years ago. Behind him, Draco sighed. I'm with you on this one, Hermione, he said. Neville frowned, and this must have been a sore point between them, because even though he couldn't see Neville's expression, Draco quickly went on to add, It's wrong to hold an elf against their will, but I think that it's even wronger to hurt them for having the will to want something that we don't want them to want. Dobby used to belong to my parents, you know, and it's good that he's a free elf now, but Tukey liked working for them. She was made to think she liked it, just like you were made to think that's okay, Neville retorted. Besides, she still does the work, doesn't she? Except now she gets what she deserves for it. Draco shrugged at Neville and then leaned forward a little, so Hermione's view of him was no longer obscured. Mother manages the estate for the good Goodtrow farms, so a lot of the elves that used to work for us still do that. It just goes through the OEWL, you know, but they're happy enough, which is what matters. It's more than I can say for a lot of other elves. Happiness in slavery isn't happiness, Neville said, with the air of another quotation. They can't help it, that's what they want, Draco said. And what they want— I can't, Hermione said. I can't do this. I can't— can't listen to this. She stood, jerking away from the table in Fleur's hand. What they want— she repeated, mostly saying it to herself. Both of you are talking about what they want, what's good for them. Why am I talking to you about it? I need to talk with them, Hermione said. And she started to walk off, only in that moment realizing that she might have trouble actually finding the elves. When Fleur grabbed her hand and she stopped with a jolt. Fleur, let me go, she said. But Fleur stood and looked her in the eye. Normally, Hermione might feel a little, well, anyway, it was mostly a bit intimidating right now. "'Will the elves still be here tomorrow morning?' Fleur asked. And Hermione had to nod. Yes, it was so. "'You're going to have questions for them? Lots of questions, I'm sure. Besides—' "'It doesn't matter. I have to understand what's going on.' "'Besides,' Fleur repeated. "'It's late, Hermione. They'll have a lot of work to do, don't you think?' Hermione nodded again. "'Tomorrow morning.' "'Tomorrow morning,' Fleur agreed. "'I'll go with you.' First thing in the morning. Wait, no, they'll be busy making breakfast, won't they? Right, breakfast. Hermione didn't know if she could eat anything, let alone Hogwarts food. Not right now. I don't want to... I'll ask. I'll find a time. Draco, the elves take breaks, don't they? Wait, I don't want to interrupt their breaks. I'm sure you can find something that will work, Fleur said. Right, I should just... I'll ask them. That's what I'll do, Hermione decided. When they can meet with me. No when they want to meet with me. Then we can talk. For the full text of this and other stories by the same author, visit the archive of our own page of Call Me Saltisside. The music is Amon Ra by Days Witch under a Creative Commons license with assistance from 1T1. If you would like to commission me to record a story, voiceover, or character, please get in touch with me using the contact information on my website, which is located at sangabrielvo.com. And there you can find other stories that I've read, 
as well as links to my Patreon page, to which I hope you consider subscribing to support me, and my Discord server, where I record things live for your enjoyment. And finally, as always, thank you for listening.